Bible or tablet or iPhone or whatever device you use, would you open with me to the book of Jonah? The book of Jonah. And also, if you would, put a bookmark in Psalm 139. And as you're making your way there, a brief story for you this morning. A pastor came to a new church, and after he'd been there a few months, he got to know a few influential men of the church who were brothers. They were multi-millionaires who were known not to be very godly men. But the pastor was determined to have an authentic ministry and not compromise, but he was going to preach the word of God. And as time went on, one of the brothers died. And the other brother, who was still alive, went to the pastor and said, Now, pastor, I know that you're going to do the funeral in a couple of days, and I also know that you want to build a new church. So I'll tell you what. I will put the money in the church account to build a brand new church if you will say at my brother's funeral that he was a saint. Well, all you've got to do is say that he was a saint and you don't have to worry about your new church building. Well, the pastor felt himself on the horns of a dilemma. On one hand, he desired to be authentic and true to God. And on the other hand, he needed the cash for his new church. The question was how to build the church with the money sitting right in front of him and yet be authentic when he knew this guy was a crook. Well, the pastor thought for a second and then he said, well, I will do it. Came time for the funeral. He got up to do the eulogy. As he stood, he said, ladies and gentlemen, we are here today to eulogize a very ungodly sinner. He was a very wicked man. He was unfaithful to his wife. He had a hot temper. He was ruthless in business. And he was a pure hypocrite. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) Are you there with me? Jonah chapter 1. Some background, some background on Jonah. Jonah was different from all the other prophets, as Eugene Peterson writes. He is not a hero too high and mighty for us to identify with. He doesn't really do anything great. Today, sin runs rampant in our society. Daily headlines and overflowing prisons bear dramatic witness to this fact. With child abuse, pornography, serial killings, terrorism, anarchy, and ruthless dictatorships, the world seems to be filled to overflowing with violence, hatred, and corruption. Reading and hearing about these tragedies, and perhaps even experiencing them, we begin to understand the necessity for God's judgment of man. Surely we might think that these people who commit such crimes are beyond redemption. But suppose in the midst of such thoughts, God told you, go to the worst of these offenders and preach the gospel. How would you respond? Assyria, a great but evil empire, was Israel's most dreaded enemy. The Assyrians flaunted their power before God and the world through acts of cruelty So when Jonah heard God tell him to go to Assyria and call the people to repentance, Jonah runs in the opposite direction. This book starts with Jonah disobeying God and ends with him complaining about what God accomplishes through the prophet. 
God works and a, with and around Jonah and his weaknesses to accomplish his purposes. In dealing with any book in the Bible, we need to distinguish between what Dr. G. Campbell Morgan calls the essentials and the incidentals. The incidentals in the book of Jonah are the fish, the gourd, which was the plant, the east wind, the boat, and even the city of Nineveh itself. The essentials are Jehovah Yahweh and Jonah, God and man. This is what this book is all about. Jonah's story is a profound illustration of God's mercy and his grace. No one deserved God's favor less than the people of Nineveh, a serious capital. Jonah knew this, but he also knew that God would forgive and bless them if they would turn from their sin and worship God. But Jonah hated the Assyrians, and he wanted vengeance for the Assyrians, not mercy. The brevity of this book, some 43 different verses, is apt to lead the casual reader that there's not much particularly going on here. There's nothing of significance except for the story about the well that swallowed Jonah. And as we read together this morning, I pray we will see the full picture of God's love and his compassion and realize that no one, no one is beyond redemption. A number of points are found here in the book of Jonah, which make it very relevant for us this morning. First, the book of these Old Testament sets forth the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All the doctrines of the Christian faith are set forth in certain books of the Old Testament. For instance, the book of Exodus, it set forth redemption. Here we see the deliverance from sin. For the sinner who comes to Christ is illustrated in this book. In the book of Ruth, the romance of redemption, the love side of redemption. The book of Esther, you have the romance of providence in that book. Secondly, in this book of Jonah, it teaches us that salvation is not by works, but by faith, which leads to repentance. Third, the great purpose is in this book, it shows that God's purpose of grace cannot be frustrated. Jonah refused to go to Nineveh, but God was still going to get his message to the people of Nineveh. Fourth, the great truth in this book is that God will not cast us aside for our faithlessness. He may not use us, but he will not cast us aside. That is a choice that we make. Fifth, God is good and he is gracious to all. The sixth and last is that God is a God of the Gentiles. When God chose Abraham, in effect, he has said to the Gentiles, I'm going to have to leave you for a while because of the sin that has come into the human family. I'm going to prepare salvation through a man and a nation, and I will bring the Redeemer, the Savior, into the world through them. The book of Jonah reveals that even in the Old Testament, God did not forget the Gentiles. If God was willing to save a woman like Rahab the harlot, and a brutal and cruel nation like the Assyrians, including the inhabitants of Nineveh, its capital, then I want to say to you this morning that God is in the business of saving sinners. 
now the book of Jonah, and my title for this morning's study, Who is Your Nineveh? Who is Your Nineveh? Chapter 1, let's look at verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for the wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah being identified as a prophet here and as the son of Amittai, Jonah's Hebrew name meaning dove, while his father means truthful and loyal. Now, this call that God had for Jonah, this commission to go to Nineveh, the city which was called so great, it was the capital of Assyria Empire, and it was located on the Tigris River. It was a world power in that day, and later on you'll We'll see a bit about the size of that city because it's emphasized several times in this book. But here the emphasis in chapter 1, verse 2, is actually the wickedness of the city. And the prophet Hosea preaches about the same thing. He records it in Hosea 7, 2. The Assyrians were one of the most brutal nations of the ancient world. They were very cruel, and the methods, the methods they used for torture could extract information from a captive very easily. One of their procedures was to take a man out into the desert, bury him in the sand up to his neck with just nothing but his head sticking out, and then they would take a stick and pierce his tongue, and they would leave him out in the desert with the heat beating down on him, penetrating sun, it was said that a man would go mad before he actually died. And that was just one of the nice little things the Assyrians cooked up. They would take the skulls of the defeated armies and they would stack them up at the city gates. The city of Covina has oranges on its signposts. You see them as you come into the city, welcoming you to the city of Covina. Nineveh had stacked skulls you would have to admit the Ninevites were just a little bit cray-cray. <laughs> Crazy, that is. These are not the people that you would invite to dinner. Their wickedness is so great that it has come up before God, and God has now determined that he will judge this city, and that if this city does not repent and turn to him, so here Jonah leaves his hometown of gath in the northern kingdom of Israel, and with a call and commission from God, you would think he would plan to go to the city of Nineveh. When God gives us directions through his word, sometimes we run in fear or we don't act on it because of our stubbornness, claiming that God is asking too much of us. It may have been in fear or anger or Jonah knowing that the wideness of God's mercy that he would have upon them, that Jonah ran from God. But running away from God will only get you into worse trouble. In the end, Jonah understood that it is best to do what God has asked. See, we pay a very costly price for running away from the Father. 
it is far better to obey God from the very start when he gives you a word or gives you something that he wants from you. Verse 4 through 6. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, little g, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had laid down, and he was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. The prophet's disobedience to God endangered the lives of the ship's crew and its cargo. We have a great responsibility, church, to obey God's word because our sin and disobedience not only hurts us, but it affects those around us. Speaking especially to the dads, the heads of our households this morning. While the storm raged, Jonah was sound asleep below deck. Even as he ran from God, Jonah's apparent actions didn't bother his conscience. But the absence of guilt isn't always a barometer of whether we're doing what's right in God's eyes. Because we can try and deny reality. We can say we do not always measure up or to what we think should be going on. Going by our feelings. Feelings can be very deceptive. There are some mornings I love my wife. Oh, you can relate. And there are some mornings that she just doesn't love me. So we can't always go by feelings. Oh, I love my children, but sometimes my children, they test me. Instead, we must compare what we do in this life by God's standards for living and not by mine and not not of yours. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. In verse 7, the casting of lots, this was the last resort for these sailors to ascertain whose guilt has caused this divine anger. And the, and the sailors knew that it was divine anger because they were experienced mariners. And this, this sea that they were trying to go through, they had never seen before. Who among them is out of the will of God? The crew cast lots to find out, relying on their superstition to give them the answer. And God would reveal his will by even controlling the lots 
which they wanted to use. See, a man or a woman out of the will of God can never really be effective witness for God. There is something very important for us to keep in mind this morning. Whatever it may be that we are struggling with, that keeps us out of the will of God, whatever we are wrestling with, is small compared to what it took to raise Christ into heaven. God paid a very high price for you and me. Therefore, if I'm in bondage, it is not because I need more power, but because I have failed to utilize the power already given to me. See, we say, I'm addicted. God says, you're free. John 10, 10, he says, I have come to give you life and that life more abundantly. We say, I'm wounded. God says, you're as whole as you need to be. For my grace is perfected in your weakness. We say, I need counseling. I need drugs. I need a program. All those things are good. But God says, you have me. So how does this work out practically? All things, not some things, all things are under Jesus' feet. What things? Dominions, powers, addictions, problems, pornography, profanity, gossip, depression, temper, sadness, laziness. Whatever it is, we can't get over. But you say, my problem is so overwhelming. Nothing is over Jesus' head. All things are under his feet. Jesus is in absolute control of every situation in our lives, being financial, physical, relational, vocational, or parental. Whatever might seem to be rolling your way this morning, ready to sink your boat and wipe you out, is already under Jesus' feet. And check this out. Check this out. It might be the very thing he uses to walk over to get to you. Verses 10 through 16. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more temptuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. And do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And they took vows. 
You cannot, your attention, you cannot seek God's love and his grace and his mercies and run from him at the same time. Jonah realized that no matter where he went, he couldn't get away from God. Go to Psalm 139. Turn to Psalm 139. In speaking about trying to get away from the Lord, trying to hide from the Lord. In Psalm 139, verse 7, this is what the word of God has to say. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. But your attention. But Jonah had another perspective. And before Jonah could return to God, he first had to stop running in the opposite direction. So question, Christian, what has God asked you to do? If you want more of God's love and his power, we must be willing to carry out the responsibility he gives us. We cannot say that we truly believe in God if we don't do the things he says. 1 John 2.6 says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Verse 12, Jonah was willing to give his life to save the sailors. Although he had refused to do the same for the people of Nineveh. Jonah's hatred of the Assyrians, it had affected his perspective and the calling upon his ministry. The same can be true of us when we don't do as the Lord has shown us we need to do. Verse 13, by trying to save Jonah's life, the pagan sailors showed more compassion for Jonah because Jonah didn't even want to save the Ninevites by coming and to share with them that the judgment of God was going to be upon them. As believers, we should be ashamed or even red-faced when we don't show more concern and compassion than unbelievers do. God wants us to be concerned for all people, lost and saved alike. In verses 14 and 16, while he was running away, he finally stopped and submitted to God. Then the ship's crew began to worship God because they saw that the storm had quieted down. Charles Swindoll, he said this, he said, Wicked men and women may be found among sailors, but when they are lost at sea, none are atheists. God is able to use even our worst mistakes to help others, to help them come to know Christ. Your testimony bears witness of that. My youngest daughter, she, she shared with me, you know, we, we go through struggles, and I'm sure you have kids who you, you have struggles with. And she said to me one day, she says, I'm your testimony. I'm your test. You'll get it when you get home. I'm your testimony. And I, I said to her, well, can you stop being my testimony? 
I love her dearly. It may be painful, but admitting our sins can be so powerful to those who don't know God. Sometimes the world looks at you Christians and say, well, you Christians, you Christians. But they don't know. They don't know your story. They think everything is rosy for you. And that everything, you just wake up in the morning and that the birds are singing and everything is just grand. They don't know your struggle. We need to share with the lost that it's not always great and we have to persevere. We need to go through these things. Verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Jonah's experience was mentioned by Christ himself and illustrated in Matthew twelve thirty nine through 40. Talking about Christ's death and his resurrection. Jonah was sent by God to the Assyrians, but he ran from that task and he was swallowed by a great fish. I know sometimes some people will say, well, you know what? I'm not going to do that. Here comes the fish. Here comes the fish. The Bible tells us he's there for three days and three nights. Then he was delivered and he went to Nineveh where the people responded with repentance. These events in Jonah's life cited by Jesus Often people of our generation demand a sign from God. But as Jesus said, the only sign they will receive is the sign of Jonah, his life, and Christ's death and resurrection. Jonah could not change or alter the dilemma that he was going through on his way to Nineveh. See, God decides when a dilemma in your life and my life will end. Not you, not me. And that can be very frustrating for me because God's clock and my clock, two different clocks. In our bedroom, my wife Sherry has an alarm clock on her side. I have an alarm clock on my side. On most weekdays, I have to get up an hour earlier than Sister Sherry. When my alarm goes off, Sherry does not jump up out of bed and run to the other side to turn off my alarm clock. No, she's still asleep. My wife likes some sleep. Six, seven hours. My daughter's the same. Six, seven hours, easy. They love them some sleep. Maybe you prescribe to that as well. But because my alarm is for me and her alarm is for her, I've gotten up at times and walked out of the room early before the alarm goes off and it's just buzzing, biz, 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 biz. And when I walk out of the room, if it's buzzing, it will be buzzing when I come back. (laughs) Sherry is not going to leave her warm spot of the bed on the other side to get up, come around, and turn off my alarm clock because she knows it's for me. Point is this. God is not listening to your alarm clock to determine when he's going to move in a dilemma in your life. It's according to his timing. It's frustrating. It can be irritating. But getting mad about it, don't change a thing. It's still going to be there. 
So we need to keep quiet and surrender and just say, okay, Lord, your will, your time, not mine. See, we all have those Red Sea moments when the Red Sea is in front of us and Pharaoh and his army are behind us and and we're just hemmed in. See, we as a people are concerned about crossing the Red Sea. God is concerned with us coming to the Red Sea. Let's go a little deeper with that. Watch this. Watch this. God does not want to just give you a miracle. God wants to deliver you. God wants you to be the miracle. And he has to prepare you before that miracle can be delivered to you. Luke 10 and 1 and Luke 10, 17. Remember when God sends out the 70 two by two? He tells them, go heal. Preach that the kingdom of God is at hand. And they go out. And they come back to Jesus and they say, Lord, even the demons are susceptible to us in your name. You've heard it said, it's not religion. It's a personal relationship. God wants to take the ministry and use you together with him. But we have to be willing to do what he wants us to do. See, everybody wants to be delivered from his or her mess. But most people don't want to change. They just want to be delivered. God loves us way too much to leave us in that state. But if God delivers you and there is no change, there is no repentance. When you get to the other side of the river, God still has the same old Donald. He has the same old mess. God wants to change us. He wants to develop us. He wants to grow us up so that there is a new you, a new me crossing over to the other side. And finally, the reason God handles the dilemma this way and in his time, because when we come out on the other side, God gets the glory. Not me, not you. And it won't be Cousin Junebug who showed up and paid you that extra money that he owed you from two years ago. God gets the glory. Look at chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 to you in Jonah's prayer. And this is what the Bible has to say. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. And you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surround me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. 
But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I vowed. And here it is. Salvation is of the Lord. Here we see we can pray anytime, anywhere, even in the belly of a fish. God is going to hear us. Our sin is never too great. And our predicament, our dilemma is never too difficult for God. You can close your Bibles. I'm going to end with this. You can put your seats up and your tray tables in their locked and upright position. We're going to land this thing. Pastor Joe shared something last Sunday that is applicable to this this morning. Jonah had no forgiveness in his heart towards the Assyrians. And Pastor Joe shared this. He said, when we are, call- we are called to forgive, not get even. We're called to forgive, not get even. God has compassion for his people, and he offers sinners forgiveness. We should be, and we should do the same. 1 John 1, 7 says this. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Well, how does this end? You will have to finish reading the book yourself on your way home. So this morning, who is your Nineveh? Who is your Nineveh? Who are you called to share with? Who are you called to take the gospel to? See, God ran after Jonah, and he's chasing after you and me. God is calling on each one of us. So who is your Nineveh? Who is my Nineveh? Me. You. God's calling you to act in forgiveness calling you and I to repentance. But we have to be willing to do what he has asked each one of us to do. Let's pray. Gracious God, who is our Father in heaven, we come again with humble hearts that are willing to turn to you, God, this morning and to hear from you and to base our convictions And our beliefs on what you have said. Which will give us, Lord, the compassion we need, the wisdom we lack, and the direction we long for. That we don't have in ourselves. For there is nothing good that dwells in any of us, God. It is only by your grace that we continue to be blessed And to be blessed by you. Help us to remember. If my people. Who are called by my name. Will humble themselves and pray. And seek my face. And turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven. And I will forgive their sins. And I will heal their land. And our land God is in such need of healing. And our hearts are in need of healing. Today we pour out our hearts as we cry out to God. We are totally dependent upon you, God, for help. 
be pleased in what was said today, even though it was spoken by one himself who is sinful and is in such great need. Our worship team is going to lead us now in a time of worship. And if you have not accepted Jesus as your Lord, as your personal sin bearer, we want to give you the opportunity to fix that. As we worship, get up out of your seat, make your way down the aisle. I'll meet you there. And you and I will pray a simple prayer of faith. But you've got to mean it in your heart. So as we worship, you come. Peace.